This is the ASC podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pei, Yale School of Medicine. This program brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASC is impacting surgical education globally. Welcome to another ASC podcast. Today, I'm really uh, thrilled to have our expert, Dr. Alan Ladd, um, who is a, is well known to clerkships and uh, undergraduate medical education. Joining us as our expert in discussing challenges uh, in modern undergraduate surgical education. Welcome, Dr. Ladd. Thank you for having me. Dr. Alan Ladd is uh, currently tenured professor of surgery at Indiana University School of Medicine. He takes on numerous administrative and leadership positions um, at the institution, including chair of the Curriculum Council Steering Committee and is the current Pediatric Surgery Fellowship Director. Dr. Ladd has won numerous teaching awards and uh, was recently chair of the Clerkship Committee and a very active member of our society. He's authored many uh, publications and chapters and an extremely active member um, in the undergraduate medical education arena, both at his institution as well as nationally. And uh, just for aspiring education leaders in the audience, uh, Dr. Ladd is also a graduate of the ASC SURF program, which has produced quite a bit, uh, quite a few um, leaders in education. So we're really thrilled to have you, Dr. Ladd. Well, those are very kind words. Thank you. I wonder if you could maybe start by discussing with the audience members what are some of, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing our medical student education at the moment? Sure. I think the biggest uh, uh, issue that I've come across uh, uh, previously in my role as clerkship director and my ongoing uh, work with the School of Medicine really comes down to the um, specialization of general surgery. Uh, As a clerkship director, we all strive to obtain a core experience for our students in general surgery. Unfortunately, the realm of general surgery isn't what it used to be in that uh, every domain is pretty much fractionated to a a subspecialist within general surgery, and it's hard in an academic um, health center environment to ensure that our students get sort of a broad scope of practice when they can only rotate on a limited number of rotations at any given uh, academic center uh, within their school of medicine. So trying to compile a a group of experiences that not always are based on a certain rotation or a given uh, clerkship uh, experience at a hospital is quite challenging, and every clerkship director has to uh, face those challenges that are unique to their own center to try to come up with this experience so that we can deliver to the medical students a very good, well-rounded experience in general surgery and give them the benefits of having rotated with us. I think uh, education is also uh, moving along in in terms of how we can deliver it to our learners. Our learners are very savvy in uh, current technology uh, for, for example, utilizing um, a multitude of modalities for their education. And so uh, gone are the ways where we can sit them all in a classroom and just uh, lecture as a one-way speaking uh, endeavor with those uh, medical students that we have to come up with 
novel ways to get the uh, uh, curriculum to uh, them and make sure that they see the, the core curriculum that we're trying to get across. And so then the, the trickle-down effect from that is that we have to uh, update our educators and as curriculum directors even become uh, more facile in uh, what's available in uh, training and sort of modern-day education. Sure, those those are great points. Um, I actually am uh, one of the clerkship directors uh, at Yale, and I I'm really I'm really intrigued by this concept that you're talking about this challenge with specialization because one of the things that I'm noticing from students is a lot of them don't want necessarily the general surgery quote unquote general surgery core experience because we frequently get requests for well, I don't understand why I have to be on general surgery when I know that I want to pursue neurosurgery. And I want to spend my entire six weeks or whatever, 12 weeks in neurosurgery. How do you, how would you deal with that? And how, what are your personal feelings about whether or not with specialization, is general surgery core exposure really necessary? Um, I do uh, uphold the, the, the premise that a core experience is, is needed. I think what we really need to do as um, both internally at our, at our given departments as well as even nationally, to try to better define what we feel that core surgical experience is. Um, as surgical leaders, we should be able to sit down, come up with those elements that define what general surgery is so that we are comfortable in knowing that despite uh, a medical student's aspirations in any given discipline, that they have a certain level of knowledge in general surgery that they can take forward into no matter what they do and what they uh, plan on uh, specializing in the future. And so we need to know that they have a baseline knowledge in, in whatever it may be. And I think we're working toward that with uh, the new uh, medical school uh, national curriculum that we're able to define those core experiences. I think the way that I've been able to face the challenge is really to think about what I want all students who graduate from our school, whether they go into family medicine or pathology, uh, for that matter, uh, what they should know about general surgery and, and uh, those key key elements that, that may not necessarily reflect their future practice, but they'll have uh, an experience that uh, we can label as their experience here at our university. I think that you're right. I, I think oftentimes um, I get tunnel vision into trying to cater a uh, clerkship to those who are interested in surgery. But really, your point is an excellent one. What we need that the design of their clerkship is for really the majority of the pe people who don't go into surgery, and that they they would benefit from a general surgery core exposure, whatever that ends yeah. up being. Yeah, I agree. I think where I have personally tripped up in the in the past is that I wanted to pr promote to them a really comprehensive education in general surgery, and you really need to take a step back and say, what do I want all graduates of, a med of my medical school to accomplish? And, and we should be able to answer this nationally as well. But what do we want them to understand and accomplish, regardless of what they're going into? And then save that um, in-depth exposure to the sub-internships and advanced electives of the fourth year for those who are going into surgery. Is that work being done on a national level? Are we, um, as you said, um, clerkship leaders talking to each other and, and really trying to discuss what these core principles are? So we are um, working alongside 
the curriculum committee and the national um, program as a combined ASE and American College of Surgeons uh, platform for developing a, a national medical student curriculum. And so that um, right now is manifest in terms of writing the, the, the textbook, uh, writing the di didactics right now, but it comes on the back of having uh, sort of delineated a uh, template uh, for what a, a national medical student curriculum should be. And I, and I, though I haven't heard initial discussions at this time, I think part of that work will be the ability to refine um, a sort of a global curriculum to more of a core curriculum that could be enacted at any medical school, but knowing that there's allowances uh, that if you have an extended clerkship rotation that you could also incorporate other uh, opportunities of that curriculum. So I haven't heard the final language around any kind of actual core uh, clerkship, but I think that's coming as, as the next uh, frame uh, of this uh, national plan. That's, that's uh, fantastic. Um, you know, well, you have uh, quite a bit of experience on curricular design, and, and you're actually on the curricular uh, steering committee of your institution. So um, could you describe to the audience what, what's on the horizon for curriculum changes? Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying that it feels like the push is earlier clinical exposure, and I would love to get a sense of um, what your personal feelings about are our clerks prepared to be on the wards, particularly in surgery? And then, and then of course, what's on the horizon for curricular change? Yeah, I think the, um, the earlier curricular change that our school has uh, just put into place and, and uh, I think we follow numerous other schools is really the shortening of the what I'll call the foundational sciences or the basic sciences um, and that instruction that the medical students get before they hit the wards. We tried to limit that down to uh, 18 months um, so that they're able to enter the um, clerkship world and the uh, clinical services a good three months earlier, sometimes four months earlier, um, so that there's even more time for them to not only accomplish their core clerkships, but also have additional um, sort of elective time within their clerkship so they get experiences to other fields of medicine that they may have an interest in um, that previously there hadn't been a lot of allowance of time for them to explore certain realms of medicine, particularly surgery, uh, like ear, nose, and throat, or ophthalmology, where they may not get a standard experience, so they can help make those decisions earlier toward their times of residency application and doing some advanced electives. So that was that's been sort of our early uh, push to try to get them earlier onto the wards. Obviously, um, they have to truncate the foundational experiences and they have to uh, come up with, again, more core material that they instruct within the foundational sciences um, and dropping some uh, material that maybe is a little bit more um, uh, of interest but may not be within their core uh, for instruction. Um, and then really the, the realms of the next set of uh, curriculum for our medical students and, and what I think is uh, is a good idea for them is 
not only to uh, start early, but we're really trying to work toward clerkships uh, that are integrated. And what I mean by that is you can take uh, certain principles um, that o- overlap one another, say anesthesia, obstetrics and gynecology, and general surgery, and try to package them a little bit mo- more coherently so that you're learning maybe from one individual patient, but seeing them through the phases of care, both preoperatively, interoperatively, and postoperatively, and not fragment it by only having experiences on the general surgery side and then having a specific rotation on the anesthesia side. Um, and so that's what we're currently working toward. In addition, um, the one that's really uh, good work under play right now, I believe, is um, no longer having an isolated radiology clerkship, but trying to integrate their material so that you actually get instruction that's grounded in a patient's experience, a patient encounter. So it it's more understandable to the student you know, certain areas of a radiograph that are important and why you would want certain testing to be performed and what are the nuances of a variety of tests in, in evaluating a patient and not being taught um, artificially on a, you know, a separate rotation within radiology. And all that allows for, hopefully, um, improved efficiency in instruction and allows them even more time toward their fourth year to do other experiences um, sure. that will help culminate toward uh, you know, their medical school degree. Sure. Uh, you know, some of the faculty that uh, work with students have this concern of this uh, earlier clinical exposure. You had mentioned you had mentioned that we may end up shortening or, or cutting out some foundational things that traditionally that you and I got two years of preclinical foundational knowledge. Um, if you were to shorten that curriculum, does that then sort of transfer that transfer that the onus of disseminating that information to the clerkship? Um, clinical faculty, or is are we saying that well, we really didn't need to spend two years on the foundational basic principles? It's it's a, a little bit of both. I think that um, with the explosion of knowledge in medicine, it's impossible to teach the medical students everything from a foundational basis, and so there is going to be core instruction that needs to happen of essential material that they'll need to understand that translates over toward their readiness uh, toward clinical medicine. But there is a a much larger body of information where we need to make them sort of educated learners and figure out how to get that information when it becomes pertinent to their studies and and eventually to their practice of medicine. So they have to be um, sort of advanced learners, sort of active learners in in that regard uh, because you just can't teach everything. And everything's important to some degree. Um, and so uh, we, we, you know, we try to pick what that core foundational experience is going to be and then also uh, set aside time for evidence-based learning and active learning so that they know how to get those resources when they need them. The clerkships do have to pick up a little bit of, of the slack because um, they need to carry over and make, make sure that there's a, um, you know, an actual utility to the education that they had from the foundational sciences. And so there should be a better crosswalk from the foundational sciences to the clerkships that reinforces some of the material that they got early on. But along those lines, we've tried to make the, a lot more of the foundational science more clinically oriented or clinically 
relevant within uh, certain practicals or uh, clinical situations or small group sessions that are around a patient case so that sure. um, the students don't feel like they're just um, digesting information to regurgitate it for an examination, but they understand a little bit more how it applies and they're getting you know earlier and earlier exposures to the mental process of how we uh, deal with clinical medicine. Sure, makes sense. Makes sense. You made a comment that I wanted to follow up on, which is uh, that some of the onus is on the the learner, the student learner who is in a who is a professional and in, in a professional school setting. That in in this day and age where there's so much to be learned, and that we're shortening the foundational time, that they have to have a little bit more independence and self motivated learning. And I have to ask the question. Are you and, and our current students are millennials. Are millennials different? Are you having? Do you feel like you're teaching a different group of people? Well, I do from the fact that um, they do not value just lecture or one-way didactics. Um, they would feel that if if you're going to offer them a didactic, they're going to ask right away, well, "Why can't I just listen to this at home?" If you're just going to regurgitate uh, certain clinical information to me and yeah. and it, it puts you um it puts you on the spot really as an educator to figure out well, what am i doing here do i really need to spoon feed them every granular amount of uh educational material so that i can make sure that i covered it and and if you self reflect on that i think you can realize that no you don't but what you have to do is then put the legwork into uh, outlining what they do need to accomplish, what they do need to understand, what are the key principles that they should take away from that topic, which is a little a little higher level of instruction. But then once you're able to outline those, you know, I guess those become your clear objectives for the educational session, then you got to provide them the resources uh, to accomplish that information. Now, some of it you really need to um, interact with the students so that they have uh, a, a an awareness and a and you can understand their level of comprehension. Uh, I don't think you can just set them loose on a textbook and expect them to come out the backside having uh, understood it all, <laughs> being able to apply it all. So you do have sure. to have those kind of experiences, but then those become more interactive, more engaging. They, uh, they can apply that information under. You can understand where their deficits are, and then you can promote. Um, their personalized education that way, and then uh, the cycle repeats, and they have to go out and and learn the basics themselves. So to a certain degree, I think um, uh, that you have to promote it that way. I wouldn't necessarily give away all lectures at this time. I'm probably still a little archaic that way, but I think there's some there's very complex um, education materials that I think you do need to walk them through a little bit uh, to help with their um, understanding. I highly doubt that you're archaic, but you just answered my next question, which was was going to be a little provocative, which is how about just getting rid of all uh, formal lectures and uh, and and you sort of you think that there's still a role for for formalized lectures? Well, I think I only can reflect on what uh, we do at our own medical school and with our current um, evolution of our curriculum, we've at least uh, said that. Uh, any given foundational science course can only have 40 to 50 percent lectures, and we had to cut out half of them, and the rest of them had to be active learning exercises or laboratory exercises or some kind of small group work. 
Um, and so that's been, uh, you know, a challenge for uh, foundational scientists. But we've also tried to partner them up with clinicians so they can make things clinically relevant and a little easier to discuss than just trying to uh, give a, a sole lecture. But I, I do think it's the way that it's going. I think that um, uh, if your if your lecture is not interactive and you don't hear the voice of the student uh, during that session then you really need to ask yourself why not just record it and allow them to listen to it at their own pace, at their own time, maybe at one and a half speed so they can get through the material quicker. Um, <laughs> I really think you have to, it, it, it affects your, your ego a little bit as an educator, um, but I really think you have to ask that hard question about what are you actually delivering to the students. All right. Well, so this that's a great challenge, but then let me let me um, let me challenge you with this question. You don't you think you'd have a hard time finding faculty who are talented in interactive um, teaching? And as it is, I would say, I, you know, I don't know how it is at your institution. As it is, we generally count on this core group of faculty. Um, I, I feel like if you were to say this is the standard of this is the standard of lecturing, or this is the standard of our um, engaging interactive sessions with our students for you to be an effective educator you have to do this that we would we would lose even more people out of that core pool of faculty members who are willing to teach the students yeah it, it's it is an evolution in uh, medical student education there is no doubt it has it has not been easy it is not easy right now um, yeah. we try to um, recruit faculty across our state. I, I'm in a state where we only have one medical school for the entire state, but we have eight regional campuses across our entire state. We have to recruit, you know, community physicians and, and community surgeons uh, to help with our education. And, every, and if you ask anybody to teach medical students, they're only going to probably reflect back to the experiences they had as a medical student how many decades ago, possibly. I think right. you really have to get out into the in, into the weeds, um, go out and visit them as a clerkship director. You have to give them experiences and, and examples about how to pull this off. Um, and, and they can do it. It's really not that hard, but everybody seems to will gravitate toward a, a lecture didactic. But if you say, look, the students are given this worksheet, they answer all the questions before they come in, then all you have to do is sit there and why don't you provide them this case that I've already written out. You just give them the stem to the case and let mm. the students go with it from there. And then when they hit a pause, then you just ask them the question, well, what don't you understand with this? What is the differential? And it, it, it empowers the educator, but they end up actually talking a lot less and listening more to understand where the student's level of knowledge is. Uh, sure. They do have to be able to integrate students, and you can't make the experiences too large. Uh, you know, you can't do it in that mentality, one in maybe 30, and maybe the ideal number is going to be somewhere less than one in 10 so that you can un understand each of the given students in that class. And that's sure. another challenge sure. in and of itself. But, but I, uh, I've been able to give this material to faculty and, and show them how to use it and um, it's not for everybody, for sure, but um, I think that, that along with the movement in educational medical students comes an evolution in how uh, faculty uh, get their faculty development in trying to pull this off and be instructed on that. And it's not it's not easy uh, to come by, um, but I think it's the way to go. 
boy, we would all um, we would all love to see your um, your faculty development uh, materials and uh, disseminated nationally. I think everybody would be everybody would benefit from it uh, because it is challenging, like you said. Um, I was recently in a lecture with students, and my lectures gen- generally are interactive, not because I feel that that's the right thing to do, but that's just the way that I felt was also engaging for me as a faculty member. But really, nobody nobody teaches us um, effective teaching. Is that a fair statement? Uh, I, I believe it is a fair statement. I think well, I think outside of groups like the ASE and and what we've been trying to do somewhat. Uh, through the Clerkship Director's Troubleshooting Program to try to educate the educators so they can take ideas home. And even even those even day-long courses um, don't hit all the needs for the educators, but it, it, it's an ongoing um, uh, opportunity for us to give the faculty development to the Clerkship Directors, and then they ha- in, in turn have to train their uh, their educators themselves. But you're right. No, there's no uh, no timeline necessarily as a uh, all right. So there's no oppor- no uh, predestined opportunities even from say the College of Surgeons that'll help you work toward these uh, areas. It really comes from uh, a larger faculty development um, promotion from the uh, greater schools of medicine across the country to do this. I, I'm fortunate that it's uh, one of the Areas of emphasis at our uh, medical school, and and, uh, I, and sure. probably for everybody's awareness, my chairman's Gary Dunnington, so he definitely promotes ongoing faculty development. But I think it's a must on behalf of the school. Yeah, that that's a really um, that's a really important point too. Um, if I might, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and get some of your insight on assessment uh, and evaluation and giving feedback to medical students. Earlier, you had mentioned that one of the benefits of an interactive session during a lecture is that maybe the faculty member now all of a sudden gets the opportunity to evaluate because the students are talking more as opposed to the faculty and potentially giving feedback. But I actually wanted to start off a question, give you a scenario. You know, I've been hearing nationally now that there's a trend where students um, don't want to, or students feel like asking them to push a patient to a x-ray machine or helping to do something that seems like a trivial task, um, that that it's service over patient, um, over education. And what's your metric of what's service and what's education and how, you know, you know, I think um, even in my current practice that if I see an opportunity to assist care, um, to improve its efficiency, um, to um, make sure that you know, maybe a checks and balance uh, exercise or whatever it may be, that if I see myself uh, helping push a patient to radiology from the emergency room to expedite care and those similar type circumstances, if I if I could foresee myself doing that in the realm of patient care, then I have no qualms asking a medical student to do that. Otherwise, if I'm going to make a, a request to a medical student, I would want to un, I would want to understand internally what is it that I'm really asking them and why I'm asking them to do that. So either I'm helping mm-hmm. patient care because that's something that I'd normally do just as a physician. Uh, in the care of that patient, or I'm, I'm asking them to do something because there's a, a learning aspect I want them to get, or there's a bonding aspect, or the 
uh, you know, maybe it's even just to the level of that you're trying to in, uh, encourage um, a, a physician-to-patient interaction on a level of responsibility. I think uh, some of those exercises are, are needed that way, but I do have you do have to reflect about uh, what are you asking them to do, and and is it doing it once uh, might be an oppor- a novel opportunity. Doing it multiple times, you know, what are they really getting out of it, and what are they in the, in that sort of that finite period of time that they're with you as a trainee? Uh, what are you losing when they're actually going to do that? If you're using sure. that, um, well. I, uh, you know, if you're using that as an opportunity to have them do something because you don't have anything else planned for them, well, that would be the opportunity to allow them to do some self-directed learning instead. Sure, absolutely. What's your practice? How frequently are you getting feedback? Um, what What do you think is best practice um, for faculty? You know, I, I think this is an area that um, I'm still educating myself on this, I must admit. I think this is a lifelong type endeavor about how um, to give good feedback and how to provide appropriate assessment. Um, I'll, I'll say that my uh, my overall um, sort of vision for this is that you have to be hands-on to do this correctly. You can't uh, sit back and be an observer to an experience necessarily and give the feedback that you'd want and, and definitely you know, having a medical student um, uh, placed on your rotation and having them experience that rotation by just uh, participating in the operating room or participating in clinic without having a, a good conver- opportunities for conversation about their education and their understanding, I think, is just a an overall miss, uh, an overall yeah. sort of failure on an educator's part. That you have to be hands-on and and you have to give them those opportunities. Not necessarily to cut them loose on patient care, but um, to show them an experience uh, with patient care, and then maybe uh, challenge them with a, uh, you know, just sort of a, a case-based uh, education uh, module, or just an, uh, you know, just to sit down and talk with them through a case and see if they can understand how they would handle that, so that you know where their limitations are and, and how to instruct them and try to get their knowledge of assessment and, and uh, sort of thoughtful process toward patient care uh, while you're also trying to cover the cores of general surgery uh, that you're trying to uh, accomplish. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's a lot to accomplish in, in these two, three-week blocks. And one of the things that we hear um, from faculty is that we're we're asking them to constantly evaluate and give feedback. And they're telling us, but wait, you guys keep changing the students every two weeks. We have no idea who they are. And I wonder, one, you know, what what would your answer be to that? And two, do you think there's a place for maybe an apprenticeship type of model for medical students where they have this longitudinal experience with a couple of surgeons who then get to know them really, really well and can give substantive, formative feedback? Yeah, those are those are really good challenges you point out, and there's a numerous aspects there. I think I'd start out by saying that if you're if you're stuck with two week experiences or three week experiences, I think you if they're going to truncate time, then I think you really need to curtail what your core instruction is going to be for that short amount of time. You can't assess all the caveats and all the competencies of medical student education within very short periods of time. And so if you're if you're forced to sort of direct those uh, very short experiences, then maybe 
we need to think about um, uh, isolating certain competencies uh, to give good, insightful uh, feedback on after they've been able to um, be either be instructed or observed um, within those uh, competency realms. Um, you can't do you know the entire general surgery curriculum in two weeks, but if you're if you're relegated to numerous blocks that you know maybe maybe numerous short blocks that make up a general surgery experience, then, then I think you have to divide uh, aspects of that core up so that they're not trying to teach the entire core, but certain aspects that cumulatively will make you up your entire core. And those are going to be internal challenges based upon the makeup of everyone's uh, clerkships. I think getting, I think um, once you have uh, understanding of the expectations, then you can really give that uh, insightful feedback that you need to give them, um, but I sure. think the I, I think the symptom uh, of the problem of our feedback when uh, constantly I'd get comments like, "Oh, the student does a good job and they're a good team player," and that's all the comments right. <laughs> you get for a certain student's grade. I think that's more of a symptom that uh, maybe our requirements are too vague or too broad. And that, uh, or, or or we need to give more faculty development on, on those aspects. And sometimes it's just giving them an awareness that look, your comments make up their entire grade, and you're one of X number of evaluators. And if I don't get good comments from you that is more insightful, then I'm not going to be able to give them a grade. And the reverse would be, you you need as an educator, we need to develop our our um, faculty. Um, so they can give those experiences to the medical students and give that insightful feedback. But a lot of that comes back to uh, faculty development. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Well, I, I, I have to ask you about, um, speaking of grades, what is your opinion on um, turning surgical clerkships into a pass-fail system, number one? And two, uh, if if you do go to a pass-fail system at your institution, are we risking then having even less formative feedback when the faculty feel like, well, my input doesn't really matter because we're going to pass 95% of the class. Yeah, I would say, well, there's multiple points here. I would say, to give you a background, our medical school went to Passville for just the foundational curriculum, that we made a conscious decision to preserve more uh, sort of segregating grades within within the clerkships. More importantly, just because we found that those are one of the higher rated uh, elements uh, to discern among medical students that program directors see during residency um, applications uh, and, um, you know, the eventual match list. And so we didn't want to put our students at a disadvantage by their transcript saying that they fell within the 95% pass range, but there's Sure. gives you no insight into their overall specific student performance. Um, I will say that if, if if you boil it down, you know all your assessments of a medical student, um, you know every quiz, every didactic experience, small group experience, simulation, even the examination, are all all, all finite uh, parameters of measurement. And at the end of the day, um, a student will know what, how they're performing because they'll have grades on each of they'll have um, they'll get scores on each of those uh, metrics. But then, how you accumulate all of that and then come up with a designation for their final grade? Well, that's 
that's just a great designation based upon their global performance in respect to their peers. And so we made that decision to do it for the foundational sciences because we felt that uh, there's there's separation among their class wasn't that important, and we really wanted to uh, improve and um, sort of build up uh, the, uh, the small group experiences and minimize competition. And so we we did yeah. it there. But I but we felt but we do feel right at least at the current time that clerkship experiences is a way to have students um, separate themselves out from the rest of the student bodies uh, um, because that they're working toward their area of uh, future. Um, study and, and toward a residency program. Uh, so we've not embarked on it uh, in a clerkship um, uh, area, and I think a lot of it is because there's not a lot of um, comparative uh, numbers to uh, be able to assess a group of uh, students applying to an individual residency program. And it, unfortunately, our fear was that we put too much weight on the USMLA Step 1 and 2 examinations right. that uh, right. puts really an undue burden on that, and, and we didn't want it to put all the comparatives uh, on those two examinations uh, for our students. Sure. No, it that's is fair. Something I, yeah, I think it is something nationally that we need to think about is, you know, how else can we provide more um, constructive and comparative data uh, you know, you, maybe you could just dream a little bit about, you know, some kind of simulation curriculum that you went through on a standardized basis that provides insight on how well you perform uh, as a early medical student physician and, and have that information. And I guess they're working toward that on clinical um, skills examination by the USMLA, but it doesn't have the same kind of um, emphasis uh, among program directors. Absolutely, and of course, that's not you know as we all know that's not specialty specific because you hear the surgery specifically general surgery programs. You know, we we value what the what other surgeons say about the applicant. We value how they did. Did they honor in general surgery clerkship, right? And so, so I, it is an interesting time. I, I wonder what will happen um, for schools who decide. But it's interesting what you're saying about this mixed the pass-fail preclinical and then going to some sort of a grading ranking system during the clinical, has that been a jarring transition for your students? Um, well, I mean, the transition for our students, we'd always been a, a designated uh, grade for the uh, all four years, and so we just changed the really the first uh, half of it with the foundational science. All in all, I, I, the, the students' percep perception on that has been positive. Um, okay. Obviously, you don't have a group of students who ha had grades during the first two years and then went back and had pass-fail, so you don't have that kind of comparison. And sure. uh, we're still early enough to uh, – to, our big unknown is how does that impact your step scores and how does that in, impact the, their overall performance uh, into the future, and uh, we're waiting to see what the results are of our of our change. We um, we have grades, but um, we do not um, formally assess on tests. So we don't, which I think the vast majority of uh, clerks around the country do have some sort of a, an examination at the end of their rotation that that takes out a, per, a percentage of their grades. Is that is that the overall paradigm? Yeah, I would say that that's a little bit more. Um, usual than than not. Um, I can't remember the data right now of how many clerkships across the country use the M M an exam like the MBME in order right. to uh, assess their students, but I do feel it's the vast majority. Yeah. 
Well, uh, Judge Rolette, I wanted to end on um, a challenge that I think a lot of us are facing, particularly with um, how busy our residents have become, is that oftentimes students feel that they are um, a burden to the team. They're not well integrated into the care team. Um, and I wonder what um, your experience might teach us about how, how do we best integrate our students? How do we make them feel like they are part, truly part of the care team. And I think one of the things that's happening that might be very helpful is now the CMS, with the recent CMS guidelines saying that their notes can be used, um, I think that's a start. So so love to hear your points. Um, a, a couple points I would make is that um, a student's, uh, when you reflect on a student's participation on any given service, uh, you have to reflect on uh, there's there's a some type of defined capacity for the medical student actually learning about their patients versus covering so many patients that they're just contributing to the service, but it's not at an educational level. There's some finite number, and obviously it's going to be maybe patient acuity specific, and maybe it's the uh, region of the hospital where there's ICU versus the ward, but there's going to be some finite number of patients um, that they can actually truly get to know those patients, get to know their disease processes and learn something. And I think it it requires to get them incorporated into a services really not only give them the opportunities with those particular patients, but give them um, thought out opportunities where they can participate that or they can come up with treatment plans. It, it takes a little bit of preparation and forethought about how you're going to get a medical student integrated and allow them to uh, truly participate as a team as opposed to just giving the objective data day-to-day -day on a patient uh, and, sure. they're, and they're cut short at that point. Um, and I think uh, one of the, the best um, uh, observations and, and maybe sort of a, an overall um, perception about how to work with medical students um, came from a words uh, sort of third hand to me uh, from David Rogers, who said that you really should treat uh, medical students as sort of guests in your home or guests on your service, that their level of responsibility ought to be invited to participate and encouraged to participate. But the expectations um, uh, to carry through the whole endeavor and the entire litany of their patient care is going to be very limited. That again, we are training uh, groups of students, 90% of which are not going into surgery, and so they you can't have the expectations uh, that you may have of say a junior intern, where their whole focus is general surgery, uh, and that that uh, was uh, eye-opening to me. That concept uh, of how to interact with students at that level that you you invite them to participate in this endeavor. They want to participate. You give them responsibility, and, and through that responsibility should come their education around patient conditions and around uh, general surgery overall. Yeah, I like that. That's a great analogy. I like that. Well, a transition to um, the one of the goals for all of the uh, ASC podcasts is when we speak to thought leaders in education like yourself, we want to know what for for those for those who are listening and are interested in a career and um, in medical education, specifically surgical education, and eventually want to become a leader like you. Uh, do you have any advice for uh, people like that in the audience? You know, um, I think my best advice, looking back over the years, 
is uh, really to become an active participant within the within the Association for Surgical Education. That by by being a active participant, then you are not only working toward your own faculty development and development as an educator, but you also uh, get to uh, in, uh, work uh, with a lot of colleagues at your same level of interest, um, your same um, overall, uh, or you share the same overall interest in medical student education at, at various levels, um, and it, it becomes very engaging and uh, very encouraging to uh, continue that type of work. And I think from from those experiences, then you you get uh, opportunities not only to work at a national level, but uh, opportunities like surgeons as educators, and the variety of of training uh, workshops that the association uh, co-brands um, to help uh, not only uh, your own education, but that of uh, the students that you'll eventually work with in the future. I think, uh, some total, that's been the the greatest impact on uh, my career and my development as a faculty member, and even at my current uh, uh, level of responsibility, I still value my interactions with the association and and continue to make it my uh, ongoing faculty development on a yearly basis. Wow, that's that's really well said. Great advice, and and uh, well, Joshua, thank you uh, so much for sharing your vast, wonderful experience and your perspective on undergraduate medical education. And particularly, I really liked your um, bringing up this the importance of faculty development. I think it's so key and something that um, that we all would benefit from. Uh, we we thank you very much for your time. It was my pleasure. I was happy to speak with you. So, audience members, we um, we look forward to you joining us on another episode of the ASC Podcast. Thanks very much. And that wraps up another edition of the ASC Podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology, the Association for Surgical Education. You can check out many great resources on the ASC website at www.surgicaleducation.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast series where we discuss pressing issues in surgical education. We invite you to join ASC and get involved and wish you success in your pursuit of surgical education excellence.